everything. So you can start whenever you want, and then uh, I'll, I'll mute myself so I don't interfere. Cool. All right. Thanks, brother. In our last class, we saw the importance of leaving Babylon, being numbered with the faithful vessels. We thought about Cyrus as a type of the Lord Jesus, his proclamation, which was put into writing, being like the gospel, giving people the choice to get involved in the building work of the ecclesia. We thought about the irony of him being a potter and his writing being on a clay cylinder, which we still have today. And yet in a famous passage about him in Isaiah 45, it's really clear that God is the potter guiding Cyrus's right hand. God even says, Cyrus has got no hands. God was directing his ways. God's angels and, and men like Daniel, we believe, directed Cyrus to proclaim liberty to the captives. Those returning were like the vessels. And under Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they gathered in Jerusalem and got the altar on its base. So come with me now to Ezra, Ezra chapter three, and we'll pick up where we left off. So Ezra chapter three, and we left off in the end of verse three. Let's go in now at verse four, where it says, they kept also the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offering by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required. So we can see that they're keeping the feast of tabernacles and it's moving to think of them making their booze, their tents in what would have been a ruined city. You think, you know, they've come back from Babylon. The land is a wasteland. The city, the, the walls are down, the gates are off. It, it's a mess. And yet here they are coming together and they're looking to, to build up these, these little booze they've got and spending this time uh, doing the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that they were fearful of the people of the land who were suspicious of their return. But there must have been such a feeling of excitement, too. They knew that they had permission to be there and to get building. And this was the choice they'd made. And if you look at the end of verse four, you see people are bringing or the end of verse five. Sorry, people are bringing free will offerings. Now, this is really important to me that there are several key phrases that we see in Ezra. I've put some of them on the, the screen for us, but this is one of them. I think it's really worth colouring. It's so important. From the very beginning in Eden, God set up choice. We have free will. As a parent would educate a child and explain to them what the right options are and how bad options can lead to suffering, even death. So, too, God has given us his word. But ultimately, God wants people who choose his ways. If you don't want it, then you've made your choice. You've been warned. God's purpose concerns those who make a choice. We have free will. We're choosing God's ways over our own because we love him and see his character as one that we want to share. Time and again, when it comes to a physical house being built, we note that God is interested in those bringing freely. It's crucial. In the end, the house that God wants us to be part of is, you know, the ecclesia, isn't it? That, that's the house that God wants to be part of too. But if you look back at the time when the tabernacle was built, you, you see that in the very first verses about the tabernacle, 
it tells us God wants those who will give willingly. When David was organizing the, uh, the things for the temple, the materials for the temple to be built under Solomon, again, you'll see a key phrase at that point, those who are offering willingly. And here in our chapter in verse five, we see this same uh, lesson being taught. So here then we have these people coming together to build the foundation of this temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. The temple is now being built up. Certainly the foundation of it is being laid. And it's lovely to note that they're clearly thinking back to the time of David. So why would we say that and why would they be doing that? And I think it's because men of faith are building on the same base. So, so like David, these men have a great desire to build a house for God. We've already noted that, the offering willingly, but this is a really a key one, isn't it? That just as David got the wood for the temple from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, and got you know, Hiram, we remember, to ship out the logs from Lebanon, bring them down the Mediterranean, back in at Joppa, and then by cart along to uh, to Jerusalem where the temple was laid. We see them following this same pattern. It's there in verse seven, isn't it? Yeah, they got them, those of Tyre and Sidon, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. And we also note that they make sure that as many people as possible can be involved in the work. So the end of verse eight, the, the Levites from 20 years and old and upward uh, were involved. And again, we look back to the time of David when he uh, changed the, the time then the Levites could be involved to make sure that more could be, to, in the end, looking to try to support the spiritual well-being of the, the land. We notice the phrase, they set forward the work of the house of the Lord, is a phrase that again we see in 1 Chronicles 23 in verse 4 with David's preparation. And of course, it's made super clear, isn't it? When in verse 10, it says that they've been doing these things after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. So we read then in verse 10 that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he's good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What a thrilling time it must have been for them to be able to get that foundation laid now, to, to see that this was coming together. And the phrase, his mercy endures forever, that they use there in their singing. So verse 11, they were praising, giving thanks unto the Lord because he's good for his mercy endures forever. That phrase is the refrain in Psalm 136, which interestingly is the only psalm that mentions the God of heaven. That was the phrase that we looked at yesterday and I've put there the references we looked at. But you can see that th this idea that the God of heaven, whose mercy endures forever, we see those ideas coming together in Psalm 136. 
And we're not surprised to see that that's a psalm that most considered to be a psalm that was sung, written after the exile. Of course, the point is that the God of heaven had brought them along the same path that had guided Abraham out of Babylon to set up a place of worship here in the land. So what a day, what excitement. Yet the occasion was undermined by some of the older generation. We have a contrast here, it seems to me, from the beginning of the chapter. Remember at the beginning, we say in chapter three and verse one, that they were together as one man. And yet now we read this in verse 12 of chapter three. Many of the priests and Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. But the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. And you wonder if it was this discord amongst brethren that the adversaries got a sniff of and decided to drive in a wedge. Notice chapter three, those final verses saying in the final phrase, the noise was heard afar off. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard. And the same lesson has got to be there for us, hasn't it? We must do all we can to keep unity. If not, we'll find ourselves open to the adversaries of God. In this case, the adversaries are sly. They talk about a desire to join forces. Verse 2 says, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. We do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. This is where Ecclesias need strong leadership, isn't it? Zerubbabel and Jeshua have the sense to say, we want nothing to do with you. Why do you think they want nothing to do with them? Well, surely it's because they knew their foundation of faith was completely different. And this is a real challenge in our ecclesial life today. Of course, we want to be inclusive. We should reach out to everyone. But we should remember that our fellowship is exclusively based on God's word. There can be no compromise there. In this case, the adversaries bring an end to the work. And so we read in verse four that the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So hired counselors frustrated the work of building God's house. The adversaries would be a thorn in their side. And we see that the work didn't get started again, as you see in verse 5, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In fact, what I'd like to do is put an ellipsis at the end of verse 5 and put in your margin chapter 5 and verse 24. 
because we know exactly till when the, the work ceased till. And so really, you can put from verse 6 until the end of verse 23 in brackets, and we're going to come on to that in a moment. But you can see that verse 5 says that the work stops until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 24 says, then ceased the work. It stops the work of the house of God, the temple, which is at Jerusalem. It stopped, ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work stops. And we believe that that work is stopping for some 17 years. There's a little bit of debate, and some people have heard saying a little bit less, some people are tying a bit more, but it seems to me from my study, it's 17 years that that work stops for. And even when it started again, they still had problems from the local leaders. So, for example, come into chapter 5 now. So chapter 5 is when the work starts again, 17 years later. And at that time, it says in verse 3, there came Tatnai, the governor on this side of the river, and Shethar, Bosnai, and their companions, and turned to them, who have commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? And they cause problems, and Tatnai then writes a letter to Darius, who's the king, and says, you know, who's given these people permission to do this work? And we've got a copy of the letter which he writes, which is there from chapter 5, verse 7, to the end of chapter 5, to chapter 5, verse 7 to 17. And then Darius, the king, writes back to Tatnai in chapter 6 and says, they have been given permission. I've checked the annals. Cyrus did give them permission. They were allowed to come and do this building. So leave them alone. And what's more, use the taxes to help pay for them. So have a look at this. This is pretty awesome, really. In, in chapter 6 now, and verse 6, it says, now, therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river. This is, this is from Darius, the king, telling Tatnai what to do. The governor beyond the river, Shethar, Bosnai, and your companions, the Arphaxites, which are beyond the river, be far from them. Let them go. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree that you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God that are the king's goods, even of the tribute, the taxes beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. So how thrilling is that to think that 17 years later, you know, the work does get started again. Tatnai tries to stop it, but Darius writes back to Tatnai and says, no, don't you stop that. What's more, you make sure you help them to get this work going again. Well, I guess all of you are thinking, oh my goodness me, we're going at a rocket pace here and we are, aren't we? we're flying through history. Come back to chapter four and you'll see now, I hope, I'm going to attempt to explain this a couple of times, why I've attempted to go right into the future there. So we left off in Ezra four and verse five. Hopefully we've all got now that from verse six to the end of verse 23, is in brackets. But this part in brackets is really important. What the inspired writer is doing is helping us to see the magnitude of the problem that these adversaries cause. Okay, that, I think, summarizes it. That the writer is helping us to see the magnitude of the problem 
that these adversaries are going to cause. Now, although the work on the temple does resume some 17 years later, the adversaries keep causing problems way beyond that time. We saw Tatnai trying to cause problems, but beyond that time, the adversaries are causing problems. Beyond the time of Ezra, beyond the, into the time of Nehemiah, the adversaries still keep causing problems. And it's here in Ezra chapter 4 that we're being helped to see the magnitude of the problem of these adversaries looking to stop the temple being built, then the walls of Jerusalem being built. They keep causing problems. If you look at this timeline, the part in the box is the time that we are looking at in our studies. However, these adversaries cause problems into the time of Esther, into the time of Ezra, and into the time of Nehemiah. And it's Ezra 4 that's going to show us that. Now, we know these problems continue because of the letters which are written in Ezra chapter 4. So we're going to put them on the screen now. Do not panic. Okay? Sometimes when you see a table, you're, oh, okay? don't panic. Okay? So let's try to explain the table. We've got the time in history that the letters were written. We've got by whom the letters were written. The red just tells you it's a negative letter that's looking to cause problems. You know, the black one there, when it's written like that, it's a positive letter, which is being helpful. Okay? And then you see to who the letter was written. So hopefully, nothing too stressful there. But these letters are sometimes written from the adversaries, other times the, the king in reply. You, you can see that the letters were written in the time of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. All the letters in chapter 4 are further ahead in history, written at points that we'd suggest are outside the immediate history, which is covered in the Ezra and Nehemiah book. So that's why they, they had to go somewhere. You know, they, they've not sort of put, gone on in Ezra after Ezra chapter 10. Instead, we've got these letters put here to show us the magnitude of the problem that the adversaries cause. So just looking at that table now, you tell me, okay, this is, there's a big clue there for you, but which is the first letter which is written? Come on, somebody call it out. Which, I, I promise you this is not a trick question. Which is the first letter? Number one, well done, okay? So this one here, they sent me yesterday, John, you will always stay behind the lectern, won't you? So there won't be a problem. Sorry, Dave, okay? Give me two seconds. Let's make sure we've got this. So letter number one, okay? This is the first one, and I'm going to put them in chronological order in a minute, okay? Those letters that are in chapter four are later on in history, okay? That's the, the, the key thing that we've got to try to, to get from it there. So let's just have a look at this now. In verse six, it says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they an accusation. So, I mean, it might well be that that letter, you know, we don't know this at all, but could have been written by Haman, okay? We know he was an adversary like these men were. Then we see another letter that's written after that one in verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, wrote Bishlam, Mithridil, Tabil, and the rest of their companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 
and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. And then we've got another letter in verse 8. Rehum, the chancellor, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, in this sort. Now, this particular letter, we have a copy of. So this particular letter, if you see in verse 11, it says, this is the copy of the letter that they sent even unto Artaxerxes, the king. So they send a letter at that time, and we get a response from that letter. So the verse 17, have a look at, chapter 4, verse 17, then sent the king an answer unto Rehum, the chancellor, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their companions. So we get an answer to that letter. So I hope you can see that these letters are going way ahead into history. Why are these letters, which are actually so much further ahead in history, inserted at this point? Well, my suggestion is that the inspired writer is showing how significant the problem of the adversaries was and how far-reaching into subsequent history it would take us. So we're going, I said I'd try and go through this twice, so we'll recap this again. Chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4 is in the time of Cyrus, when they build the foundation of the temple. They get it going. But in his time, the work of the building stops. So they get the foundation laid, and the adversaries hire counsellors, and they stop the temple work going any further. The work on the temple, though, does get going again in the second year of Darius. We know that from verse 24. But after they started again, Tatnai, in chapter 5 now, and verse 3, he writes a letter hoping to stop the work. So we're going to put the letters in chronological order now. So really, the Tatnai letter is the first letter that we know about, okay? Although the, um, we know that the hired counsellors try to cause problems, we don't know that there was a letter that was written at that stage. So the first letter we know about is here from Tatnai. Darius replies and lets them get on and finish the work. And that reply is in chapter 6. And so as we'll see later, they do manage to finish the work of building the temple. And that's just a great time in history. However, chapter 4 is demonstrating to us that the adversaries persist. And so in chapter 4 and verse 6, we're taken forward in time to the time of Ahasuerus, when the adversaries again wrote a letter, and we're suggesting that Esther could well be between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Okay, that, that's it's not certainly my suggestion, uh, but it's a suggestion that makes a lot of sense to me when I read that. After Esther, okay, that's between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, in chapter 7 of Ezra, that's when Ezra himself actually turns up. He arrives on the scene. And he is given a letter from Artaxerxes, giving him permission to journey to Jerusalem and to restore the worship of God there. So that is letter 4. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Another letter was written after that in the days of Artaxerxes, and that is later in history again. And we are suggesting that that letter 
along with the next ones, are between Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 1. And that's why they've kind of they've got to go somewhere in this in this book, and they've been put here. Now, what I want you to really see now, and this is where we can get our coloring pencils out, is that it's in this letter, okay, letter number six, where Rehum the Chancellor, Shimshai the scribe, wrote a letter, and we've got a copy of this letter. You've got to see now a key word that comes in this letter to understand why we can be absolutely confident that this is not talking about this time, it's talking about a time much further ahead in history, which makes sense with Artaxerxes. Look at this, verse 12. This is part of their letter. Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, and are building the rebellious and the bad city. What was the key word? Well done, you picked it up. Verse 13, be it known unto the king that if this city be built. Verse 15, know that this city is a rebellious city. The end of verse 15, the city. Verse 16, we certify the king that if this city Look at the reply from the king. It's about the city, verse 19. It, verse 21, it's about the city. Do you see the key word here? At this stage, Jerusalem is a ruined city. Okay, They're not building the city. They've only just got the foundation of the temple being built. Okay, They want to build the, 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 the rest of the temple. And it's after they build the temple that Nehemiah is able to come and to help to build the city. But certainly, this is not talking about this stage in history. These are letters that are looking into the future. They are helping us to see that this problem persists. And, and if you sort of need that um, sort of underlining anymore, you'll note then in verse 24, okay, this is where we pick up, isn't it, about the actual record, that then cease the work of the house of God. So that's a key phrase that you can run all the way through Ezra, the house of God, the temple. But this letter is in relation to the city. Now, of course, years later, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah asked if he could go and rebuild the walls. And we know that he was given permission and did go back to rebuild it was as a, a sort of project that took some 12 years to complete. But just this is the last complicated thing that I'm going to show you here. Interestingly, at that time when Nehemiah was building, Sambalat, okay, so apologies, that's what we're suggesting in terms of the, the timing of those letters. But I wanted to just point this out to you now. Sambalat, when he writes a letter to try to stop Nehemiah building, what is interesting is that in Nehemiah 6, which is where we get a copy of Sambalat's letter from verses 5 to 7, he copies this letter from Ezra 4 and verse 11 to 16 by starting off the Jews, telling them they're rebellious, telling them they're going to be hurtful to the kings. Why does he copy this letter? Because this letter worked. This letter did stop the building of the walls of Jerusalem for a while, okay? 
We know that the building of the walls of Jerusalem got started. We know that. If you just come to Ezra chapter 9, So they got the temple built, that's fine, the end of Ezra 6. Then they'd have got started on building the walls, okay? Because we read in Ezra 9 and verse 9, Ezra's prayer, We were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So, yes, they would have just got started on that work. But those adversaries wrote a letter. The letter, we believe, the one in Ezra chapter 4, the one that we've got a copy of. That did stop the work because the, the reply came back, yes, stop them doing that work. The work stopped for a while, sadly. We then know that when we get into Nehemiah, Nehemiah in front of our tech services, manages to get the, uh, the, the permission to go back and to get cracking again on building the wall. So, take a breath, brothers and sisters. You did really well. Um, yeah, apologies if I didn't do really well. But look, have a look for yourself. Try and look through those letters another time. I think you'll begin to, to kind of make the same conclusions. It's one of those things that I spent hours and hours and hours trying to get my head around and, and then read Brethren's book like uh, Uncle Michael's on the exiled return and think, I wish I'd just read that earlier, okay? Uh, so, so I'd suggest that, uh, yeah, you, you do the same. You see that uh, really that's the, the thing, that's showing issues of the adversaries going into the future. So we noted that the building work stopped for some 17 years. We've tried to make sure that everyone understands that these uh, letters have been included to help us to see how big a problem the opposition was. Uh, they help us to see how far-reaching it was. And the lesson I think that comes out is that no matter where you are in history, if you are looking to, to build God's house, you're going to come across adversity. You know, that is a key lesson that we're going to see. But yes, the building work stops for some 17 years. And if you turn now to the end of Ezra 4, we'll really try and pick up now where the chronological history picks up. So chapter 4 and verse 24 again. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then, at that point, in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So let's turn now to Haggai chapter 1 and just get a sense of the, the loveliness of Haggai and Zechariah being there, having to speak to them, giving them a hard message, getting to recognize that their priority needed to be to build the house of God. They couldn't leave the foundation just as it was and, and nothing being done. Of course, it must have been a challenge that the adversaries brought to the, to the mindset of the people, really, that the time for God's house perhaps hadn't come to be built. And the reason we say that is because 
The people knew that Jeremiah had prophesied about a 70-year period where the king of Babylon would have rule over them, and also a period regarding the desolation of the land. And it's a bit ambiguous at times as to whether it's the same 70-year period. But almost perhaps because of that ambiguity in terms of the 70 years, it seems that the people sort of decided, well, look, we've got these adversaries like stopping us. Perhaps now is just not the right time to be doing this building work. And so they stopped with the building work. They knew that the temple was made desolate in 586. So 70 years on from them would take them to 516. So the house was stopped building around 536. It seems that they were thinking to themselves, well, let's just stop. Let's just, we can justify to ourselves that the time is just not right to be doing this building work. But their excuse was lame. And clearly the work was left until in 520, at this point, God sent Haggai and Zechariah to stir them up to the building of the temple. So let's pick it up. In the second year of Darius, so do you see, surely you've got it in your cross-references, Circle that one, Ezra 4, 24, Ezra 5, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. A brother made an excellent point here. He pointed out that by justifying to themselves that it was the wrong time for God's house to be built, the people were essentially saying it's the right time for God's house to be laid waste. And when you think of it that way round, it hits you how wrong their priorities were. How could it ever be the right time for God's house to be laid waste? Do you remember we saw that when they built the foundation, they followed the example of David? Well, clearly David's example had gone out of their minds. David famously felt uncomfortable when he lived in a house, but God's house was a tent. David wasn't comfortable with that. He wanted to build a house for God. But the example of David seemed to have gone from their minds at this time. The sealed houses that they were building may well have been using the wood that was designated for the temple. So do you see in verse 4, Haggai saying to them, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses. Well, the reason we're suggesting that is because the word for sealed is only used on six occasions in the Bible. Four of them speak of being sealed with cedar. Okay, so there's uh, some of those occasions there. Well, where does cedar come from? Uh, the cedars of Lebanon. Where would these people get it from? many of whom we'd noted previously weren't particularly well off. Well, just hold this passage and just quickly jump with me back to Ezra 3. Ezra 3 and verse 7. 
we've read this already, but let's just make sure that we've got this connection. Ezra 3 and verse 7 is where they gave money to the masons, to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them, as I unto them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa. So, yeah, we, we believe then that this is highly likely that the cedar wood that they've got is wood that was ready to build for the temple. We know that they only got as far as building the foundation. And if you remember, the foundation, we know from Zechariah, was made of stone. So this cedar that's been lying around, as it were, for some 17 years, okay, we know the cedar is linked to when cedar was used to make sealed houses. Okay, it seems that this is what they were doing. Okay, they were make, putting these cedar paneling in their houses while the house of God laid waste. I think it's also interesting to me to note that Solomon spent more time building his own house than God's. And we know he made his own palace to have cedar paneling. And it seems that for those people in Haggai's day, it's almost as if they had fallen into the same trap. You, like me, might well believe that Ecclesiastes were written at the end of Solomon's life when having taken life to the limits of what humans would and could do as the great pinnacles of happiness, he built great houses. He drank copious amounts of wine. He created beautiful gardens. He had pools of water. He had servants. He had great possessions. Yet he summed it all up as pointless, as vanity, as striving after wind. And here, in a sense, this is what they had to learn. Verse 5, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai again, Haggai 1, verse 6 now. You sow much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. So we're going to pick up again in Haggai tomorrow with this exhortation to consider our ways. And we're going to see how Haggai most certainly exhorts us to. But let's try to conclude now with some lessons together. We thought about the fact that God gives us free will. He wants people who choose his ways. But when we think about the choice, there is no choice. I always remember this, that Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says to the people, and he's calling out to the people, says, I set before you this day, life or death. Listen to what he says next. So there's a choice, life or death. The only thing he says is this, choose life. He doesn't say choose life or choose death. Of course he doesn't. There is no choice. I set before you this day, life or death, choose life. Yes, we have free will, but of course there is no choice. This is what we should want to do to serve God. And God wants people who choose his ways.
God is looking to people, men and women of faith, who will look to other examples of men and women of faith. That's the most lovely Bible study in all the world to do. Just It happens almost every time you ever study a Bible character, you see how that they pick up from another Bible character. And you realize that, of course they do. Men and women of faith, that's what they do. They look back to other men and women of faith and they learn from them. Just as we saw those guys looking to David and to Solomon. Yes, we're going to follow that same pattern. Men and women of faith learn from other men and women of faith. We thought about the importance of trying to keep unity in the ecclesia. When we're not as one man, the adversaries can cause real difficulties. We have thought about the fact that it's highly likely that there will be times when the adversaries do come in in ecclesial life, but never settle back and allow ourselves to, to go along with the idea that, well, I suppose this is just the sign of the times. The ecclesia is going to go waste. Keep building, keep working to keep the unity where we can. What we should do is prioritize building the ecclesia above all else. This is where our resources should go. Support ecclesial events. Now, there are, and I know that there won't be in this room, but we've got to encourage, aren't we, like those who sort of think that they're bound, that the only fraternal they can go to is their own. We've got, to, we've got to get out of that sort of mindset. We've got to offer lifts. We've got to help people to make sure that we realize we're part of a, a community that's, that's UK-wide, worldwide. We've got to give time to those who are struggling. And some people are so good at that. I was talking to a brother on a walk today who sounds like he's had a seriously difficult life. He was telling me about a relative of his from Paul's Levin meeting. And I knew this auntie. I'll tell you about this, auntie. When I was poorly as a 16-year-old, I ended up in hospital for almost a year. And this auntie wrote a card every single week. It blew me away. And as a 16-year-old, you can imagine, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do on a hospital bed that's particularly naughty, but I, I still want it to be, you know? And, and, you know, you're trying to fight against these things. And I see that sort of love pouring in. Not, not just to me, to, to, to my family in general. Think, what is driving these people? And of course, it's this. This is what changes us, what transforms us, what helps us. This is what, what makes us want to reach out and support one another. We should keep supporting one another, brethren and sisters, on our walk. This is how we build up the ecclesia. We should support inter-ecclesial events. We should... Book onto a campaign. No, have, have we come to a barber school just simply because we, we want to put some notes in our margins? I love doing that type of thing. You know I do. I'll tell you to stick it in. Yeah. But, but, and of course, we do that thing because they do strengthen our faith. It means the next time we come to Ezra, we think, oh, yeah, I know about that. That's a bit about the city. But then we can keep building on that and learn a bit more. And these things do deepen our faith, which is great. So, of course, it's super to come on a Bible school. And we're supporting one another. And we're having conversations with people who perhaps might be a bit low and things like that. What a great thing to be able to do. But what work are we doing? When was the last time we booked onto a campaign and thought, do you know, this isn't going to be about me. I'm just going to simply give. 
I'm going to go and I'm going to give out. And you know, every time you go, every time if I ever go on these things, anyway, I kind of book on like, oh my goodness me, I don't want to go on this. But I walk away like this, you know? I'm dancing. It's, it's great. You have such fun, don't you? you? You bump into people who who want to talk about these things and you, you always come away with a real buzz in your heart. So God knows what's best for us. When he says, you know, fellowship is what you need, he knows that and he's helping us. So make sure that before the end of today, before the end of this week, we think to ourselves, yes, I'm going to give, I'm going to build up in the ecclesia. Get involved in mission work, get involved with young people. There's so many things, of course, that we can do. Let's make sure that we prioritize building the ecclesia above all else.